Good morning, everyone. God is good, and I am going to get going. Um, we're starting a new preaching series this morning called Cries of Calvary. Um, just before we head into this, I just want to pick up on something Liz said. Liz, not saying you've said anything wrong. God will lead us home, and he is leading us into pleasure evermore and into his eternal presence and goodness. But on the way, we may face all kinds of persecution and suffering and trials and circumstances. And it's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He said this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will come and take us from the hand of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long, said the Apostle Paul. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us. From the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because we're a culture that is prone to comfort and security, I just felt I wanted to say, lest you heard what Liz was saying about God's promises right now, you have no comfort. I just wanted to say that is not the invitation of the gospel. The gospel is come, die to yourself, follow Jesus, and then die to yourself every day, count the Count the cost of being a follower of Jesus. The, the cross is an invitation to suffer with Christ. But he will lead you home safely. Amen. I read a great, um, a great quote by Tim Keller the other day. And he said, the gospel, when truly understood, frees us from the need for everything to go well. So we are heading up to Easter and we're starting a new preaching series called The Cries of Calvary. We're going to be tracking with Jesus in his journey, really in the last day, um, so the events of Good Friday up to Easter. And we're actually um, starting, because we can't control the snow, uh, our um, plan's gone slightly wrong this week, so we're starting with week two, which is Calvary Cry Substitution, which I don't think is such a bad thing, because I'm not sure what Nick would have said on silence anyway. Um, There wasn't much to say. So we're starting off with, oh come on, that was pretty good, I thought of that this morning. We're starting with um, part two, Calvary Cries Substitution. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles, Mark chapter 15, that's where we're going to be based over these weeks. If, can I encourage you this afternoon to go home and read Mark chapter 15 and just into chapter 16. It's where we're going to be based as we follow Jesus. On this journey. Father we thank you. That you have given us your son. That you handed him over. Even to death on a cross. You gave him as a sacrifice. In our place. And Jesus we say. Who is there like you? And who else would give their life. Even suffering in my place. 
And so, Lord, we lift up our hearts and hands and eyes and ears right now, and we say, Jesus, be magnified this morning as we come to your word. Come and bring fresh faith. Open eyes of the heart and ears of the heart. Open the window of the soul in that way that we would see and behold your beauty afresh. We pray this, that you would be glorified amongst us as your people. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, um, amazing preacher. He said this, the best preaching is simply this. We preach Christ crucified. The best living is this. We are crucified with Christ. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell, all moved by his wondrous passion, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men Like a dying saviour. What a great quote. And so over these weeks we're going to go to the cross. And we're going to reflect on the cross of Christ. We're going to spend time listening to the cries of Calvary. Calvary is a hill where Christ was crucified. We're going to listen to the message. We're going to listen to what rung out from Christ's cross. From this hill, Calvary, as Jesus walked towards it. What's the message of the gospel? What's the Christian hope? What happened? Why did Jesus die? What, what, was, what were the gospel writers so excited about this event, this, this worst of days, if you like, that for, in irony we call Good Friday? What was it that gripped them, gripped their lives, that they gave their lives to become followers of Jesus? And we're going to walk and we're going to listen. We're going to sit and dwell and ponder where the cries of Calvary can be heard because nothing puts life into men like a dying saviour. And so over these five weeks, I, I really hope we, as, we, as we get hold of the gospel writers that we don't just hear it as some theology and some information, oh, this is what happened to Jesus. But that we walk with them we, as though we're there, hearing it, seeing it, smelling it, touching it, tasting it, and feeling it. I pray, my prayer is that we marvel and are astounded at Christ, the crucified Messiah. There is nothing that could benefit our time more over these five weeks than stopping and reflecting on the cross of Christ. So over these five weeks, we're going to see that Calvary cries silence. That'll be next week. Today, substitution. Then we're going to see that Calvary cries shame, surrender, and Sunday. Mark chapter 15, verse 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. So this is the day when Jesus has just been brought back to Pilate. It's the morning of his crucifixion. And Pilate is playing politics at this point in the story. And there is a custom, we're told, where the, the, the officials at points can release prisoners. Basically to appease the, the crowd, to, to keep peace. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, i.e. set somebody free. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. 
knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Calvary cries substitution. Mark is one of Jesus' disciples. He walked with Jesus in life. In Jesus' ministry, he learned, he followed, he watched, he observed Jesus' life. And this is, we're based in Mark's gospel, and this is his account of the life of Jesus Christ. And on this day when Jesus is about to be crucified, and Mark is just lining up the events, in this short chapter, chapter 15, it's very strange, but Mark takes a quarter of this chapter to talk about the events of this guy called Barabbas, a guy that we never hear of again in the Bible. We actually hear about him in the other Gospels. But post this event, we never hear of him again. And Mark is gripped with this guy. Something about this guy's story captivates Mark's attention. So much so that he fails to talk about lots of other doctrinal theological truths that are taking place at that same moment. About Jesus being the propitiation for our sin. Jesus being our sanctification. About the cross bringing justification. About God reconciling humanity to himself. Redemption of men and women far from God. There are loads of other key doctrines and theological truths that are going on. But Mark doesn't focus in on that. Instead he focuses on this guy Barabbas. He is caught with this story. And so I want us to just right now this morning ask, why is Mark captivated with this guy's story? What is he trying to communicate to us through this apparent random guy that was in prison alongside Jesus, due to be executed that day? What caught Mark's attention about this guy? Barabbas is a man on death row. He's on, he's on death row, we're told, because he was a rebel. Oftentimes, we, you know the, the two men who were crucified along Jesus? Oftentimes, we've got into the habit, because of some translations of saying they were thieves or they were robbers. But actually, a better um, translation would be that they were rebels. They were insurgents, seeking to overthrow the Roman occupation. And so, in one sense, from the Rome's perspective, they were terrorists. And so, Barabbas is a rebel... He's trying to overthrow the government. And so too are the other guys who are crucified either side of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus is up on the same charge as both Barabbas and these two other guys, apparently of wanting to overthrow Caesar. So we have four men this day up for crucifixion. Three of them are guilty and one of them is innocent. We know three are guilty. Because the two men who end up being crucified alongside Jesus say, we are both guilty, but this man has done nothing wrong. And we know that Jesus is innocent because Pilate's already pronounced him innocent. He he said, I can find nothing in this man. 
And Barabbas is guilty of the exact thing for which Jesus is innocent, of trying to overthrow Caesar, of seeking to start a revolution. One of them is guilty, one of them isn't. One of them killed somebody. Barabbas is a murderer, we're told. One of them was the healer and life giver. Barabbas' name, we just need to stop and for a moment, in, we, with this, this truth can so easily pass us by if we don't stop and understand what's going on here. And Mark was captured by this name, I think, because he witnessed the death of Jesus. And he saw this man called Barabbas standing alongside a man called Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he said, God is telling a story here. The man Barabbas in Aramaic, Bar means son, and Abbas means fathers or father. So the name Barabbas means son of the fathers, son of the father. And so you have Barabbas, this guy, this rebel who is the son of the fathers, on trial alongside Jesus who is God's son, the son of God, the father, the true son. And Mark is caught by this fact. The son, the true son of God the father. And alongside him, the son of the fathers. Mark wants us to see that and to not miss it. We need to make that connection if we're going to understand this story. You see, Jesus was innocent of the crimes for which he was on trial for. And for which Barabbas is guilty. As we see, Jesus takes Barabbas' place. As a substitute, taking Barabbas' punishment that he deserved, and Barabbas gets to go free. Just for a moment, I want you to think about this. That God orchestrates every single event in history. He is totally in control. It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just coincidence that on the day that Jesus is crucified, that there happens to be a guy in jail that day called son of the fathers. God wants us to get hold of this story this morning. So Pilate has these two men in front of him, Barabbas and Jesus Christ. And he says to the crowd, he says, who do you want me to set free for you? Look, Caesar can be generous. That isn't really what he's thinking. He's thinking, I'm trying to keep my job here. But who do you want me to set free? This man who is guilty or this man who is innocent? Which do you choose? And the crowd call out for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. We want to kill Jesus Christ. We want the guilty to go free and we want the innocent to be condemned even to death. And as a result, Barabbas walks. Knowing full well that he is utterly guilty of everything for which he has been tried And this is the heart of the gospel. That God would send one who would substitute, be a substitute in place of the other. And I think God knows that we find that heart. I think God knows that as a a truth that God would give his own son the substitution. Substitutionary atonement. God would give his own son in place of one who is guilty. That's a hard thing to get our heads around. But it is so at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to play a clip for a moment from the Hunger Games. If you've read the book or seen the movie, you'll know that the plot revolves around this horrid contest called the Hunger Games. In this dystopian future, 
you have, the, you have these young men and women who have to battle it out to the last man standing. If you're a Fortnite fan here, raise your hand. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'll just move on. It's point. It's not even worth it. Dave, thanks. It didn't go down quite like a lead balloon. I'm just moving on. And so you have, these, you have these representatives, one young lad and one young girl from each of the districts in, this, in, this, um, in, the, in the world at that point. And the contestants are forced to go into a fight against each other and have to kill each other. The winner of the Hunger Games is basically the last man standing. And for the 74th Hunger Games, the authorities come along to District 12 to select one young guy and one young girl from District 12 who have to go into the Hunger Games to represent their district. And the name of Primrose Everdeen is plucked from a large bowl and she has to go and potentially lay down her life on behalf of District 12. And I just want to show you this video. One courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th annual Hunger Games. As usual, ladies first. your name? Agnes Everdeen. Well, I bet my hat that was your sister, wasn't it? Yes. Let's have a big hand for our very first volunteer, Katniss Everdeen. And now, 
Thanks, for the Bill. boys. You see, Katniss, she provides an amazing substitution in place of her sister. And we kind of get it, don't we? We kind of like to think that if it was our sister, our brother, our son, our daughter, our friend, that we would step in place for them and lay down our lives. We like to think that's what's going on here. But it's a really understandable substitution. Volunteering oneself for another human being in that way is a, is a, is a sacrificial kind of love, absolutely. But it's understandable. But Jesus' substitution did not work like that. You see, so often we can think that's how Jesus' substitution worked. Hey, we're innocent and we, we, we don't have guilt, but we just need someone. We're facing death. We need somebody who will come and save us from death. But Jesus is the one who comes and substitutes himself for somebody who's a murderer. He's the one who substitutes himself for the Jews who desperately want to kill him. For Pilate, who's just interested in his political career. For the schemers. For the swindlers. For ISIS. For the robbers. For the murderers. For the religious. For the adulterers. The idolaters. Jesus substitutes himself for people who are not innocent, but guilty. We are the reason that Jesus is dying. One man dies in place of another. And God created history in this way with Barabbas and Jesus on this morning that you and I could look at this story and we could place ourselves in this story. You see, unless you see yourself in the story of Jesus' death and crucifixion, you have misunderstood the heart of the gospel. Unless we see ourselves in this story, We've missed what Jesus is doing because we are supposed to look at Barabbas and think, that is me. I am Barabbas. I am guilty of everything that I've done wrong. Every bit of evil, every bit of sin in my life, I am guilty. And Jesus is innocent of all of those things, yet he goes to the cross and takes my sin upon himself. He bears my sin as his burden. He dies in my place. His back is scourged and he has a crown of thorns placed upon him. He is mocked and ridiculed and crucified in my place. I am Barabbas and I am set free. But not only are we Barabbas, we're also the baying crowd that are demanding the death of Jesus. And we have to see ourselves in this story. It's why Mark has put this story in in this account of this day of Jesus' death. You see, Jesus is really innocent of everything for which I'm guilty. And I'm guilty for everything for which Jesus is innocent. But because he died in my place, I don't have to. I get to go free, never to be killed again or prosecuted again for the crimes that I've committed against God. You see, Calvary cries substitution. So this moment when the crowd cry out for Barabbas to be set free and and Barabbas is released and Jesus is held back. Just for a moment, I wonder what was going through Barabbas' mind at that moment. I wonder if he legged it. Worried that they would grab hold of him. 
worried that his freedom wasn't true freedom. Or I wondered, I wonder if he, if he marveled at this man who everybody knew was innocent, who took his place. I wonder if he saw Jesus and he thought, what kind of man is this who would die in my place? You see, just a few verses earlier, we've seen that Jesus has already stood silent. He's not tried to defend himself. He's not even opened his mouth against the accusations that have come against him. What kind of man is it who doesn't even defend himself and willingly goes to the cross in place of another? We, we don't know how Barabbas responded. But what about you? How do you respond to this cry of substitution? I just want to read a couple of quotes. This is from a guy called Mark Dever. And he said this, this is why Mark was gripped by the story of Barabbas. He understood that he is Barabbas and that you and I are Barabbas. And he wrote it down for us so that we could see ourselves written into this story of the darkest of days to feel the astonishment of it, sense the relief of it, smell the scandal of it in order that we might also know the hope of it. And John Stott said this of substitution. He said, substitution is not a theory of the atonement, nor is it even an additional image to take its place as an option alongside others. It is rather the essence of each image at the heart of the atonement itself. None of the four images could stand without it. He's just referring to what he's been talking about. I am not, of course, saying that it is necessary to understand, let alone articulate a substitutionary atonement before one can be saved. Yet the responsibility of Christian teachers, preachers, and other witnesses is to seek grace to expound it with clarity and conviction. For the better people understand the glory of divine substitution, the easier it will be for them to trust in the substitute. He's basically saying this. For you to understand the story of what happened on that day, you have to see yourself written into it. You must understand that you were there. Ready to have nails driven into your wrists and your feet until a man who was totally innocent came and took everything that you were due. The question is this then, why did God do it? Why did God give his son, Jesus, the true son of the true father? Tim Chester, a Christian writer, says this, what if God is writing the story? And what if the story is actually for real? And what if God steps into the story What if God is not simply the narrator of this story, but also has now become a very part of the story? In Jesus, God enters into our story. He shares in our humanity. He suffers in our pain. He dies our death, pays our penalty, penalty, and atones for our crimes. The Apostle Paul wrote it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is called the great exchange. 
hey, Jesus, you can get my sin. You can take my place on that cross, dying the death that I deserve, taking the punishment that I deserved, and in, in return, I receive your righteousness as though it's my own. Totally undeserved. Totally unearned. And this is amazing grace. Grace is love that took my place, knowing that I, like Barabbas, had nothing to give in return. These are heavy things. These are weighty truths. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable, when I am unlovable. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. There is no accounting of, well, I'm, I'm religious. I do the right things that please God, and that's why he died for me. I pray. I give. I go to church. I, I tell other people about Jesus. That, that's why Jesus died about me. He knew I'd be that kind of person. No, we're all broken People, in every area of life, sin has broken us. This is amazing grace, that God would send his only begotten son to send a Barabbas like me and like you. Just going to read one quote from John Piper and then we will finish and respond with communion. He said this, grace gives and from our vantage point it always gives to the wrong person. Barabbas did not deserve to walk free that day. We see this over and over again in the gospels. Jesus is always giving to the wrong people, prostitutes, tax collectors, immoral, broken people. Grace doesn't keep score. It refuses to be controlled by our innate sense of fairness and even-handedness. It defies logic. It has nothing to do with earning, merit, or deservedness. It is opposed to what is owed. It doesn't expect a return on investments. It is a liberating contradiction between what we deserve and what we get. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserved person by an unobligated giver. It is one way love. Jesus came to liberate us from the weight of having to make it on our own. From the demand to measure up, he came to emancipate us from the burden to get it all right. From the obligation to fix ourselves, find ourselves and free ourselves. Jesus came to release us from the slavish need to be, to be right, to be rewarded and regarded and respected. Because Jesus came to set the captives free. Life does not have to be a tireless effort to establish ourselves, justify ourselves and validate ourselves. Once this good news grips your heart, it changes everything. It frees you from having to be perfect. It frees you from having to hold it all together in the place of exhaustion that you, that you might even find energy. No, the gospel is the grace of God. Not too good to be true. It is true. 
The gospel is this. You die to yourself and you get God. It is the truest truth in the entire universe. God loves us independently of what we may or may not bring to the table. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to worship and celebrate with communion. I just want to finish reading the quote from Spurgeon again. Spurgeon again there was one extra part that he went on to say. He said this. The best preaching is this. We preach Christ crucified. The one who substituted himself took our death, our punishment, stood in our place so that we can have life, that we can be reconciled to God, that we can have our sin forgiven. The best living is this. We are Christ crucified. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, where we can view heaven and earth and hell, all moved by his wondrous passion, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying saviour. And he goes on to say, in response of Christ, our substitution, what does life look like? Get you close to Christ and carry the remembrance of him about you from day to day and you will do right royal deeds. Sounds like he's from the West Country. Come, let us slay sin for Christ was slain. Come, let us bury all of our pride because Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to newness of life because Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in his one great object. Let us live and die with him and then every action of our lives will be very beautiful. Father, we want to thank you that you gave your son. But it wasn't a mere giving of your son for people who are good and deserving or people who are innocent. You gave your son for the guilty. You gave your son for those who deserved everything that was coming to them. And we thank you that you gave your son because you loved us.